0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. I'm Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Our program today is titled Linear Societies and Nonlinear Drugs, and it's by Terrence McKenna and is one of a series of audio recordings from our website, Planckenorte.org. There you can find talks given by Eric Davis, Bruce Damer, Daniel Pinchbeck, Terrence McKenna, and many others. And I'll tell you more about Planque Norte at the end of today's program. But before we begin, I'd like to give you a little plug to my friends, uh, Jacques Cordell and Wells of Chateau Hayuk for letting us use a cut from their CD, Nature Loves Courage, as our theme song. The first time I heard them live was at the Wave for Terrence McKenna that was held here in Southern California several months after Terrence died. And uh, in case you don't know what a wave is, <laughs> it's a combination of an Irish wake and a rave. And those of you who are lucky enough to be there know what a spectacular event that was. So uh, thanks again to Jacques and company for the free use of their music. Now about today's program which is a talk that Terence McKenna gave at the Theobotany Conference in Palenque, Mexico during January of 1999. Uh, Terence gave this talk actually at the end of the pool down at the Chanca Hotel, which is near the ruins in Palenque. And uh, you can hear the howler monkeys and cattle in the background if you listen closely. And by the way, if you go to our website, you'll find a few pictures from some of these legendary conferences. This recording uh, of this talk actually was made by my friend Noah and he gave me a copy of the talk when we met again at the ayahuasca conference in San Francisco later that year when I offered to pay him for his expenses in producing the CD he wouldn't uh, take any money for it instead he told me to just see that it got the widest distribution possible and uh, so now that podcasting has come to life I thought this would be a good way to do just that a sad footnote of course to this story is that poor Noah accidentally overdosed and died a year or so after we last met. And that was a real sobering moment for all of his friends because we knew that Noah was a really experienced psychonaut. And if it could happen to him, it could happen to any one of us. It was really a powerful wake up call, but uh, since then, our clan's been much more careful about the use of these powerful medicines. For example, most people in the tribe that I know now take the time to go to arrowwind.org. that's E R O W I D.org, before trying a new substance and then learn as much as they can about what. the experience is that they're about to have and reading the trips of bad reports (laughs) trip reports from bad reports i think is a must you know granted only a very small number of psychedelic experiences turn out hard to manage but if you don't think you can handle the downside of a particular substance then uh, maybe you ought to pass on that one for the time being but that's a topic for another day today we have a real treat for you especially for those of you who have not yet experienced one of terence's brilliant talks at the end of the last century The Utney Reader selected Terrence as one of the hundred most influential people of the 20th century. In my opinion, he's definitely in the top ten. So, without any further ado, here is Terrence McKenna and his 1999 Palenque talk that he somewhat offhandedly titled Linear Societies and Nonlinear Drugs.
1: Well, so then let me turn to the main event. I've got a snoot full of tequila and a messianic mission. (laughs) (laughs) Clawing the ground to talk to you, as usual. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody has their own name.
2: That's
1: right. Uh, I guess the title of tonight's talk is Linear Society and Nonlinear Drugs, which uh, is something that I just had to pull out of the air when Ken finally slammed me to the wall for what I would be talking about this night many months ago. But more and more for me, especially with this group, these things have become sort of... Uh, summations and I guess I hope convivial examinations of just where we are, we each and every one of us, and then this enterprise, whatever we mean by that, in the context of everything else that's happening in the world. In other words, the psychedelic experience, uh, the entheogenic experience, uh, contextualized and as I try to think about you know, what, if anything, I can bring to the party, I guess it's that what I'm interested in is uh, psychedelics as a philosophical tool. And when I concretize that for myself, I realized no, there's no claims on that part of discourse. No one wants to do this. Uh, Philosophy, uh, academic philosophy is done in a very formal manner and the most exciting is incredibly stuffy. Uh, And yet, I, uh, like most of you, I assume, have taken on board in my life this thing called the psychedelic experience, which has been as large a portion of my... Being as my sexuality, my politics, my education—it it shapes everything. And yet, nowhere in the in the world of philosophical discourse is there any genuflection, at least overtly, made to this. I may, maybe not since Plato, talked about uh, shadows on the wall of the cave and so forth and so on. Well, so. Uh, What can psychedelics and the psychedelic experience bring to philosophy? And and what do I mean by philosophy? By philosophy, I mean uh, the enterprise of discursive thinking, trying to understand what the world is and who's asking the question know where did the world come from where is it bound and who's along for the ride and it seems to me that we as a community have this is sort of hard to wrap your mind around least for me but we have in a sense inculcated into ourselves the image of an underclass so that we struggle for legal toleration of our of our practices and our habits but we don't struggle for intellectual legitimation of our vision we accept that they are somehow contextually marginal and and as i thought about that i realized that that is uh, a limitation on the community that uh, the information which is coming from the psychedelic experience as interpreted by Western people is primary evidence for the need for a major paradigm shift in the whole way uh, the Western mentality does business. Well, what kind of evidence and what kind of shift? Well, there's a lot of talk in our community, and there has been for many, many years, about shamanism. And when we seek to legitimize ourselves through a historical argument, we reach back to shamanism and we say, we're part of something which is 100,000 years old and worldwide and touched the spirit long before the shadow of the cross fell over Jerusalem and so forth and so on. <laughs> all, all true. Um, and in a way, that has, I think, the, that uh, tendency, which is part of the broader tendency in the Western mind to... Uh, valorize and grow nostalgic over the primitive has put a certain political cast on our on our uh, stance and our position. But what we are is a, again contextually is a culture of science uh, and I'm speaking now of our community. Uh, it's the Albert Hoffman, and the, and the Dave Nichols and Sasha Shulgans who have kept our canoe afloat. These are men of science. It's methods, it's vocabulary, it's culture. We have not, though we certainly honor those people and love them, as their rhetoric is not the primary rhetoric of the larger community of psychedelic users which tends toward this, uh, as I refer to it, this shamanistic aboriginal nostalgia. This, I mean, let me just turn left here for a moment and say I, I feel more comfortable with the scientific end of things. I think the news coming out of science is the most psychedelic news uh, there is when I go to the internet I go to things like science alert and the Hubble picture of the day and uh, and this sort of thing and uh, our community as a whole I think is not involved enough in incorporating the, the vistas if you know, we while we struggle to legalize psychedelics, psychedelic thinking is everywhere triumphant because the instruments built by linear science throw open doorways on the unimaginable and the and the most revered and hoary hefes of the scientific establishment have to genuflect before this stuff. I mean, what am I talking about? Well, for example, uh, Science Magazine uh, wrote last week that the most important scientific breakthrough of 1998 was the uh, apparent observation and agreement upon that observation by the astrophysical community of a cosmological constant. This sounds like very deep physics, but if I give it to you as a headline, what it means is the entire universe, every atom and every empty space of it, is ruled by a very weird force that has now been seriously known to science for precisely five months. (laughs)
2: Uh, A
1: force which is apparently going to overcome gravity's tendency to collapse the universe and to cause it to expand in a very explosive and counterintuitive and uh, (laughs) psychedelic fashion uh, that is the complete confoundment of the core science that Western linear thinking has has built. And of course there weren't riots in the streets and the electricity didn't fail, uh, but at the very pinnacles of the antenna of the evolving civilization uh, there was a shudder felt in the force, you may be sure. So, there are two much larger forces than our community that are in play in terms of shaping the cultural modality. And and I would call them... Um, what would I call them?, well, I would call one of them science it 's the other one that i 'm having trouble with it It is uh, everything which is not anchored in the rational. You know the twentieth century is the most spectacularly celebratory. Uh, has the most spectacular celebratory affair with the irrational since the 16th century. I mean, never before have so many prophets, wizards, wise women, casters of runes, uh, seers of visions moved among the people, uh, 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 plying their wares. Uh, and part of this is brought on by the tension between the failure of the education system at the very moment of an inflationary expansion of knowledge. So that it's very hard to to be au courant in all fields. And if you're not current in a field, then probably your version of that field is some kind of story, a myth. You know, uh, I mean, if you can't keep up with quantum physics, why not fall back on archangels? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it requires less intellectual engagement, or something like that. Uh, discourse is fragmenting. Fields of discourse are evolving vocabularies so rapidly that the understanding of these vocabularies is not penetrating very far beyond the core group of workers so then this is creating kind of islanded systems of self reference where outside those, those systems of self reference information doesn't travel uh, the people who are the gene splicers know very little about remote sensing and both of those parties know very little about uh, recent discoveries in astrophysics for example So there's an intellectual fragmentation. Uh, I live in Hawaii and in a forest in fairly remote conditions, and so I entertain all this in my mind all the time and try to, my faith, and I assume it's the psychedelic faith, although we've had some fairly existential characters in our ranks over the years. (laughs) But but the psychedelic faith, I think, is that uh, the universe is, is beautiful in the platonic sense, and therefore good and true. In other words, we're optimists. We're not The flailing existentialists we're not relativists, because we have a real standard to measure our spiritual coinage against. So we're not relativists. This is a point I'm really keen to make, because we're embedded in relativism. It's all around us. It's the air we breathe, but it is not inimical to the... Psychedelic community. I mean, I think the psychedelic experience is the only authentic source of uh, uh, reliable contact with the noumenon. I mean, meditation and so on and so on is all very fine, but uh, it requires a leisure class involved in philanthropic support of this kind of foolishness, where uh, the psychedelic experience is immediate. And, uh, and real. So, uh, now I've lost my way here. Ah, uh, yeah. No, no, optimism. So I sit in Hawaii and I look at all this and I try to contextualize it and, and come out with a, a good story because I think the best story will win. Uh, so if you, can, if, you can, if you can get together the best version of how it should all come out, so shall it be. And I work at this because in the past I've been very, very happy with the results between my interior fantasy and the unfolding of historical development. I mean, I, I wished for LSD, and then it happened, and then I <laughs> dreamed of the internet, and then it happened. so I should keep Definitely. Uh this uh, and i I recently read a very interesting book called "A Thousand Years of Nonlinear History" by Michael Delanda, and if you get a chance, you should take a look at this. And he made a point, which caused me to expand his point into this little thing I'm going to tell you now. But his point was that uh, human beings are very involved in the movement of geological material. That as a species, we move rocks around. O- on a very large scale and of course it's interesting that the er- some of the earliest human structures are the most physically massive and weighty <coughs> like the Great Pyramid. Um, so Delanda made this point about our relationship with the, st- the geograf- geological stratigraphy of the earth and that cities were a kind of geological extension of the process of crystallization carried on through the intermediation of a biological unit, i.e. intelligent primates who are building these structures. And uh, I thought that was very interesting. I had never considered it before. I'd al- I've talked about virtual reality and I've said that uh, it's nothing new that Ur er was a virtual reality and you Juryuch was a virtual reality but done in stucco and fired ceramic and stone and that when the medium is so intractable as stone the epistemic assumptions that get formed about what reality is are very different than if you can build Versailles at the click of a mouse button uh, but nevertheless it's the same but... Embedded in my reading of Delanda was, uh, I've been thinking a lot, and I talked to you a lot last year about artificial intelligences and minds which are not human, minds which are very different from us, intelligence which is very different from us. Uh, You know, while the naive are scanning the stars our appliances have become telepathic Uh, here. There is uh, a very strange kind of intelligence being called into existence by ourselves, strangely enough. And, and this is the connection to Delanda, this artificial (laughs) intelligence which is being called into being by human activity is made of the same materials as Ur and Chataglius, It's made of ceramics, glasses, and metals. It's that... uh, So then I took this on board and thought about it, and I've sort of come to some kind of cyberpantheistic Emersonianism, (laughs) uh, which is... uh, here, I'll give it to you as a headline and then work backwards so that in case I forget what I'm saying, it won't be lost to suffering mankind. The, the Earth's strategy for its own salvation is through machines, is what it is. And human beings are some kind of, uh, we are the deputized, We are the bride in this alchemical rarefaction of glasses, ceramics, metals, and and volatile materials. Apparently, the earth is like some kind of an embryonic uh, or fetal thing. And at the end of its gestation, what is happening is it is ramifying its nervous system is appearing in its developmental, in the unfolding of its morphogenesis and as we contemplate nanotechnologies and see ourselves working through bacteria and this sort of thing at the engineering level you have to be blind to not then reflect back upon the fact that in some sense we are already working at that kind of level at the behest of it is not clear who because nobody ever asked the question in quite this way before the answer to who I think is, is the earth and that w- what lies ahead at the end of the linear tunnel of, of western subjectivist positivist structuralist assumptions that we've been operating when we hit the end of the tunnel and burst out into the larger mental space of cosmic evolution, what we are going to find is that we are partners, actors, in a cosmic drama that involves the earth at one polarity and machines at the other polarity as the expression of the will of the earth toward a kind of self-reflective transcendence that is achieved through machine-human biotic symbiosis, and that—and this is—you know—it won't. There'll never be a headline which says this. Some people won't even notice that it's happening because these large-scale processes can be described by many metaphors at many depths. But I'm telling you, I, I think this is what going on. Uh, the reason I like this story is because uh, it's not a story about processes out of control. It's not a story about human guilt. It's not a story full of we musts and we should. It's a story which gives honor to every part of the unfolding experience field, in other words, biology, technology, human culture, human traditional values, transcendent human uh, dystopian values. It's a story of things on course on time and under budget
2: (laughs) and I assume
1: that's how nature really operates and that we live inside Some kind of anxiety producing culture that is uh, a necessary, I don't want to say evil, but a necessary response to conditions of stress. Uh, There are processes which, you know, uh, waste, uh, nuclear waste buildup, urbanization, land disturbance. There are processes which if allowed to run on indefinitely would wreck the whole system and pitch it into chaos. (coughs) But Confucius said uh, no tree grows to heaven and what he meant by that is it's fruitless to project any process to infinity because any process Projected to infinity create some kind of catastrophic scenario. If no fruit flies died in six months The earth would spin out of its orbit from the weight of fruit flies. No, I don't think that (laughs) 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 But what an image Somebody once told me if the earth completely disappeared except from, for its nematodes <laughs> that you could still see the outlines of the continents if you were standing on the moon. <laughs> I thought, now just, who gathered this? <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: so then, to bring this back around a little, wh- wh- where, where is the psychedelic experience in, in all of this? Well, well, Um, It used to be called, or at one phase it was called, uh, Consciousness Expansion. And Consciousness Expansion in human beings is going to become uh, an absolute necessity. Mm -hmm. Because we are summoning out of the woodwork of cybernetic technology Machines that are going to require super-intelligent humans to direct and uh, and have discourse with them. We This is happening. It is already happening. I mean, the Internet is this. I mean, it doesn't tap you on the shoulder and remind you to brush your teeth. But it is you know, a partner in the understanding of the world that is genie-like. That's the image I have when I sit down to it. It is is—it is uh, all John Dee would have asked of his archangelic messengers. You know, he wanted instantaneous information on the political situation in the courts of Europe. He wanted information on the course of the Drake's expedition then on the other side of the planet. The internet is this kind of magical, intelligent prosthesis. Uh, And as I said, there won't come a dramatic moment, I think, a la lawnmower man or something like that. (laughs) These these things are are much more seeping. Uh, The only people who in fact can see the game move against the background of the forest pattern are psychedelic heads. Uh, you have to think about this stuff and you have to develop vocabularies for catching it in action uh, this is what the game of of, uh, of being an intellectual is I think uh, trying to trying to see the process of morphological unfoldment in action and guess uh, the direction in which it's uh, it's headed Uh, because it's inevitably headed toward greater density of information at greater speeds, higher level integrated metaphors visually rather than textually displayed uh, transformation of such graphic and glyphic elements over time, it becomes more and more like the interface. of a computer more and more like some kind of uh, machine environment. I mean our, we have thought for I assume at least a hundred thousand years, maybe much uh, longer, but uh, the quality of thought, you know, it was early, when it was early, it was intermittent, it was thin, it was a groping, it was a, an undigested intuition, a perception slipping away from the mind's eye. Because of media reinforcement and education and acculturation and the passage of a 100,000 years, the voice of the mind, the, the logos, uh, has grown stronger. But now it takes uh, a, uh, an exponential leap forward into visualization, into manifestation through this information processing prosthesis that integrates us all and uh, you know I can imagine a future not very far away where the the individual uh, the expression of the individual is lowered, is more muted I mean this is the most individualistic individual worshipping century, the century just in that we have ever known and its it's great accomplishments uh, its great works of art were all accomplished by individuals and uh, political undertakings such as the Third Reich and so forth and so on also highly motivated individuals who rose above the masses I'm not sure we can afford the luxury of that kind of exhibitionistic individualism in the future. And I think probably it's not that we're talking about a restriction of human rights we're talking about a transformation of human drives the states of integration and collectivity that will be sold as public utilities in the next century are anticipated now by groups, psychedelic experiences, ayahuasca sections, uh, this sort of thing. And the the dichotomy, and I I think I made this clear when I talked about the earth and machines, the dichotomy between the natural and the artificial is an obsession of the 20th century, hence canceled now. Uh, In fact, a whole bunch of things are canceled we were talking at home about how, how uh, Roger Shattuck in his History of Dada said that the 20th century couldn't wait to be born. It was born in 1888 at the death of Victor Hugo. And the I said, well, so if it was born in 1888, when did the 20th century end? And I think it ended in 1992. It expired early with the birth of the World Wide Web. What defined all that modernity uh, was mass media, you know, uh, mass media shaped that whole psychology and it is now archaic. It is now, it's not archaic, it's obsolete. Uh, it's, It's wonderful that the phrase 20th century is beginning to have that wonderful brown gravy Edwardian tone that used to be reserved for the term 19th century. Meaning, you know, those terribly stuffy and confused and rather silly people who just didn't quite get it right, but were doing the best they could and muddling through. And thank God they gave way to us, the people of the 21st century. Let me see here. Is there a flashlight? I have a page full of notes. I needn't be so... Is uh, there anything here that wasn't touched on? Well, some notes about um, the this in, this planetary intelligence. Thank you, Jean. Uh And how all that works. Um, one of the insights that I've been reading different people this year maybe you can tell and one of the people I've been reading is uh, Greg Egan who I talked about last year but now I've read more now I've read Diaspora and the ones where he makes no effort whatsoever to explain it to you unless you've already done your homework And, and then Jonathan today in his lecture talked about DNA a little bit and frame slippage and all of that and it reminded me of it the thing that I'm coming to from my psychedelic uh, experience and my life experience and the whole ball of wax is I I said for many, many years that the world is made of language that was just sort of one of of my bumper stickers but I think that 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 carries some of the flavor of what I want to say there but that there's more to it than that. It's, it's that uh, everything is code. Everything is code in the sense that hackers mean when they say they write code. When Sasha stands up and waves his arms and draws what he calls the dirty pictures, he initiates you into a code a vocabulary with very uh, defined rules and quick to learn and then they're like tinker toys once you know the rules of the connectivity then you can sit down like a child and begin to stick these things together and say, well what would this be like and what would this be like and does God allow this or does this break the rules and so forth the DNA is like that human language is like that uh, human body language is like that. Machines communicate like this. In fact, uh, uh, this is the, uh, a bridge which connects us. This is the great overarching bridge which will connect us to the machines that they, like us, are uh, commanded by language. And so... Uh, <laughs> this realization that everything is code and code moving on many levels is, I think, a further... It's more primary than the perception, for example, that things are made of space, time, matter, and energy. That's one level below code. The code codes for space, time, matter, and energy. It's much more like we're in a a simulacrum some kind of machine environment. And in fact I like that idea because I've always sensed and psychedelics have always intensified this intuition in me, that the universe is a puzzle. Life is a is a problem to be solved. It's a conundrum. It's not what it appears to be. It, there is a there are doors, there are locks and keys, there are levels Uh, And if you you get it right, somehow it will give way to something extremely unexpected. DMT is a perfect example of that. And, of course, at the molecular level, it literalizes that metaphor. I mean, the the DMT is... The molecular key, the extraneous object introduced into the front door of the synaptic receptor, and then you know you can plunder the palace for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if the if the world is uh, if the world is code, then um, it can be hacked. In other words, it won't. It needn't stand still in quite the same way that it stands still in your mind if you believe in something called the laws of physics. Uh, it permits magic because it says behind the laws of physics is a deeper level, and if you can reach that deeper level, you can make uh, you can make changes there. Uh, Alan, this leads on to something that I wanted to say about an earlier theme where I was talking about the legitimation of the of the community's intuition. It's something that we always kick around at these things, or I always bring it up in some form, is where do the hallucinations come from? Uh, we arrived late last night after a 24-hour trip from Hawaii that was just hell. <laughs> or as much hell as modern airlines can legally inflict upon you. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 uh, you know got stoned, and then we so we were laying there, and uh, the it always happens when you know you're cut off from cannabis for long periods like that. <laughs> so, you know, you turn to it; it's ten times as strong, yeah. and the hallucinations were exquisite. And, you know, I've been looking at hallucinations now for 30-some years. And and I looked at these last night and I thought, if someone would ask me what were they like, what would I have to say? And I hit, said, indescribable,
0: mm.
1: indescribable. And I looked and looked and I could look to my heart's content and they were in, uh, indescribable. So we always come around to this question, Uh, Where do the hallucinations come from? And I suppose the unconscious reductionists among us, and I don't mean that they're unconscious, I mean that they unconsciously use reductionism,
2: uh, probably
1: assume that it's some kind of like iteration thing that bits and pieces of everything you've ever seen are rolling in some kind of neurological kaleidoscope that can run forever (laughs) and just produce this endless download of drifting imagery. But there's a problem with that, because this stuff is too coherent, it means too much, it's too emotionally charged. Well, we have never really rallied as a group to try and locate, in our in our combined opinions, the one or several sources of these images. And uh, I think that... Uh, and I talked a bit about this last year, but I think this is legitimate perception of, of uh, thoughts, places, things, times, and objects that either have existed somewhere in the universe or do exist or have existed in the minds of beings somewhere, sometime in the universe. In other words, that we have to begin to take seriously the consequences of generalizations like quantum connectivity. In other words, it's one thing to bask in the light of the overarching metaphor, which says everything is connected to everything else. It's quite another thing to say, and so then what are the consequences for me of this? And the answer seems to me to be that that the imagination... The inside of our heads really is the most vast frontier Mm -hmm. imaginable. And we must leave it for future generations, or maybe not generations, but future evolutionary biologists to figure out why an animal nervous system would evolve a propensity for accessing bell non-local data, in other words, quantum mechanically, uh, accessible data at a different level of the physics of things. There must be a reason. And in the same way that the problem of speciation posed a problem for 19th century biology, this can pose a problem to our thinking without its thinking our intellectual enterprise. It is for some more sophisticated future group of thinkers to understand why this is so what we have to grapple with is that it is so Mm -hmm. that it is so that uh, you know you have the Hubble telescope inside of you Uh, you have inside of you an informational gathering instrument that can give you good intelligence about things so immeasurably distant from this point that to state it in numbers and units is meaningless it's just elsewhere, the elsewhere of the absolute infinity of the of the plenum of imagination in which apparently beings rise and fall like plankton in the sea. And of course, the psychedelics are the, the naturally evolved nano machinery of the Gaian matrix that knits together this cosmic. Um, Ecology, this system of living relationships. I, I am I'm not impatient with the idea of extraterrestrial life or intelligence, just its pop <coughs> regurgitation. But I think probably planets like the Earth are alive and conscious, and they use the technologies that the species native to them evolve. To cast images out into the larger universe, that the dialogue among cosmic <coughs> minds is a dialogue among entire mm. planetary ecosystems. It's not. It can't be trivialized into some "take me to your leader" <laughs> scenario. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Still less can it
1: validate uh, the unscheduled visit of pro bono proctologists from nearby stars. <laughs> You that have to get <laughs> Oh, I know one other thought that I, in uh, assessing this year in science. I, I talked about Omega, the cosmological constant, uh, and that is really incredible. In fact, let me do a personal breast-beating thing and point out to you that this thing that they have come upon, Omega, the cosmological constant, this absolutely, you know, 50 years ago or so, Einstein called it the biggest blunder I ever made because he played with the uh, the necessity of this thing to keep the universe from falling in on itself. And then he decided it was an unnecessary construct and that it, it led to such weird... I conclusions that it had to be gotten rid of and so that was all very well and good until the these recent measurements of the distances of certain supernova carried out independently by several teams of astrophysicists brought the news that uh, the universe is expanding Faster than the laws of physics allow. And when they looked at how much faster, they realized that it called the cosmological constant back into existence. Well, but here there are a couple of things about this cosmological constant that are very counterintuitive. The first is that it acts on empty space. It it does not require matter to manifest, it is a property of space itself, the cosmological constant. The second thing is, it's, uh, it's a repulsive force that is growing stronger and stronger. Forces don't grow stronger and stronger. They grow weaker and weaker. Gravity grows weaker. Light grows weaker. Everything grows weaker. This force, as time progresses, gets stronger and stronger. Well, that means when you project it out toward you know, billions of years into the future, it becomes the dominant force. It it overcomes gravity, it overcomes the strong force, the weak force, it overcomes all the forces, it becomes the dominant force. The other thing about it is that it becomes stronger, not on an even slope, but asymptotically it becomes stronger. Well, now, this produces something very much like what I've been yakking about uh, since 1971, the novelty wave, the so-called time wave. It, too, grows stronger and stronger through time, and it, too, has this kind of built-in asymptotic acceleration where it uh, experiences a kind of inflationary expansion in power. The two map over each other very well. But when you talk returning now to the cosmological constant, when you ask when the astrophysical community realized the consequences of taking this on board, they realized that it was dissolving the entire model of what cosmology has been throughout the twentieth century. Because what it's really saying this discovery, less than six months old, <laughs> is that space itself is in, in the, the act end. of exploding. That the universe is, is on the cusp of a, uh, an inflationary phase of expansion similar to the inflationary expansion that occurred at the time of the Big Bang. What would this look like? What would it feel like? Nobody can even imagine. It is not upon us. I don't mean that. But I mean that in the near future of the universe, in the next uh, billion or two billion years, things will change very, very dramatically. Uh, Everything will begin to rearrange itself according to the expression of this asymptotic power. So that that was... uh, the biggest news in astrophysics. The other news, which has psychedelic implications, I think, also comes from astrophysics. As you may recall, last uh, August, I think it was, I can't remember exactly, every man, woman, and child on Earth got the equivalent of a dental X-ray when uh, there was a uh, a thing called a, a starquake on a uh, on a magnetar, a magnetic neutron star, 20,000 light-years away, experienced a catastrophic collapse. And there was a wave of gamma rays that were, that were well, turned on every light in the system when it hit the planet. Uh, and no, an event like that had never been observed before. And I got to thinking about this, and I realized, you know, well, we've only been looking for this this kind of thing for 30 years. There's probably quite a bit of this kind of anomalous, high-energy, short-duration fluctuation of radiation going on in the galaxy. And then I had a kind of an image, I wouldn't say a vision, but a kind of an image of... uh, of how things are really arranged uh, on the larger level in terms of the galaxy. And I, the image was of a donut. And, you know, we're accustomed to being told that we're at the, out at the edge of the Milky Way where stars are few and far between, that this is the boonies, in other words. <laughs> but I'll bet you the boonies are where biology thrives. Because the low star density and the distance from the galactic core and these extremely energetic events at the core would create a kind of uh, donut situation where it's the toroidal area out near the rim where stars are slow burning and they don't collide with each other and plants can form and you get the five billion year run you need mm-hmm. to get to a civilization. But, uh, you know, our uh, rule of biology and strategy and everything, and religious practice as far as I was concerned, is seek the light. Well, the light is at the core. And so then I saw, uh aha, maybe the true seeking of the light requires biology to go into partnership with something beyond biology because the environment at the core is so energetic. And I'm not suggesting the, the actual core, that's beyond contemplation. That's a black hole. No technology imaginable <coughs> that can, can get even near the event horizon of an object like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean in the vicinity of the galactic core, where you know, there are star, the star density is two to three hundred times greater than it is in our vicinity. Uh, those kinds of environments are so fraught with peril for biology that probably downloading ourselves into machine symbiotes of some sort is the only, is the only way to go to those places. In, in one of Greg Egan's novels, he pictures a, a human future where this is one option. You confuse yourself with a starship and set out to check out the neighborhood. Or you can join the Amish and (laughs) till Rye uh, in Pennsylvania. Actually, I think you can't do that because something's happened to the earth. But some Hamish possibility is still uh, available. Well, this is not like... uh, the sort of uh, thing the other faculty members will be talking to you about, which is an intense and, and primarily important download of the, in the, the homework, the chemistry, the botany, the behavioral impact, the archaeology, the ethnography of, uh, of these substances. I ask myself all the time, you know, how are we different from other people? Are we morally superior? Are we smarter? (laughs) Are we richer? Are we kinder to the people we meet? And actually, the longer I look, the less I can tell uh, uh, there are extraordinary examples of all of these things in and outside of our community and extraordinary nudniks and jerks inside and outside. our community but we have in our hands tools that I think if people were correctly presented with them and understood without hype and hysteria and hyperbole what this psychedelic enterprise is about that we would win them to our cause because our cause is uh, the human cause, Mm -hmm. the cause of thinking and communicating and building and bringing into existence uh, new forms of beauty, new possibilities for being. And this can be done without psychedelics, certainly. But with psychedelics, it it, uh, is accelerated. And it has a feeling not only of immediacy, but of, uh, the only way I can put it is, is correctness. It isn't the, it isn't the lonely neurotic artist thrashing toward some kind of self-reflection. It's the firm guiding hand of a greater mind. The Logos, the or I'm not sure. But a greater mind. I mean, art, true art truly is, truly inspired. And, and the, the muse, I don't think, was more real for Homer than it is for each and every one of us when we're in the presence of the mushroom, or ayahuasca, or DMT, or LNZ, or something like that. Uh, so... You know, I suppose I will go to the grave with life as uh, mysterious to me as I found it when I came to consciousness uh, around six or seven. But I think life is uh, whatever it is, it's an opportunity of some sort, and the things I have been most grateful for were the things that I met at the frontiers of, uh, of, of knowledge, of sexual experience, of psychedelic experience. Uh, knowing, feeling, and being one with being are how I would categorize uh, that breakdown. So, I think the future is uh, bound to be very confusing and demanding for most people, and there are many claims on on each of us and our intellectual loyalties and where we put our energy should we tolerate relativism? Should we be Mahayana Buddhists? What's our position on the Huichol? How do you relate to Monica? All these things have been sorted out, you know. But uh, uh, I feel feel actually like the thing that I I always dreamed of in my early youth was uh, a miracle. I, I I didn't particularly like Oshvensky's book, In Search of the Miraculous, but I loved the title. And I used to just tr- tr- sort of chant it as a mantra In Search of the Miraculous, just one. I knew the rules. Just one is enough, because one secures the possibility of an infinitude of miracles, whether you have observed them or not. Well, now I'm 52. <coughs> and I've seen i don't know four or five, which is four more than necessary to make me a lifetime optimist, but the the recurrent the enduring miracle, however it's achieved, is the the psychedelic rush, you know that giddying moment when all all bets are off, all boundaries dissolve, the machinery of language fails, the adjectival wheel wells burst into flame, <laughs> and then, you know, you achieve orbital velocity, and are in the presence of uh, of the thing. And I, I cannot believe that that is not a solitary experience, and you've heard me say many times that how itchy it makes me feel to think that somebody could go from birth to the grave without having uh, that experience. They can make of it what they want. They can denounce it. They can deify it. But uh, one should have it because it's, it's one of the compasses, the primary compasses of, uh, of being. And it's larger than the historical context I mean, the point of this talk tonight was to talk about uh, linearity and idea systems and the nonlinear impact of uh, of these drugs and the way they break down media bias. But the the all these intellectual ideas exist in the light of the sun of this unspeakable primary. Experience, and we can we can draw it, paint it, sculpt it, act it, dance it, drum it, and never take anything away from it. Never define it. Never occlude it. Uh, it's li- it is a miracle. It's like uh, having the presence of a deity. It's I think very hard for me to open myself up at any given moment to the full implication of how fortunate I am and how good life is in uh, in the shadow of this particular tree. Anyway, that's the formal talk for tonight. Thank you very much. And now we'll entertain questions which is usually much more fun <laughs> so anybody got a take on that or want to say something completely oblique or anything
2: um, else? Last year, let's start with last year, um, human intelligence or giant intelligence or artificial intelligence. Extra, extra. you speak up? <coughs> you'll repeat it
1: <laughs> well the question is about the discussion about artificial intelligence you mean the hierarchy of the yes, relationship the, of yeah. these things well I don't, I don't know I guess it's becoming easier for me to be a mystic about the earth <laughs> than to think that we are going to be rescued by the galactic federation uh, I, I think that the earth that it's a profound connection. The, the the earth is the foundation of everything. It's the foundation of biology, and it's the foundation of, of machine culture and machine architecture. So, you know, if you can imagine that a redwood is alive, you it's much easier for me to imagine that there is some kind of slow-moving, telluric, Intelligence mm-hmm. that uh, may have begun as a homeostatic system, in other words, to stabilize the atmosphere, to create a chemical environment that was uh, had a uh, momentum to it that wasn't driven by the cosmic ambiance. You understand what I mean? Uh, no,
2: no, feedback yeah,
1: feedback mean mechanism. Feedback and and then of course people say well it's very hard to imagine it because there are no genes there is no nervous system there mm. is nothing that we can quite but I think that first of all we don't know a great deal about the earth the ocean currents its magnetic fields its 32 nutational and processional motions its core dynamics mm. uh, its distribution of materials it is complicated, and that's what's always required for self referential and feedback systems to evolve. Life evolved on the surface of the earth. Now in the usual story of this the earth is not a major player it's just sort of where it happened
2: Mm -mm. but Mm
1: -mm. on the other hand what if you took the view that the earth permitted or coaxed into existence or made possible or encouraged or enzymatically catalyzed Mm -mm. these processes and, and the, you know, the, the geomagnetic reversals, the glaciations, the uh, ebb and flow of nitrogen levels in the atmosphere, all of this has pumped biology. And it's always been presented as, well, uh, the cosmic atmosphere, the cosmic environment is unpredictable and so you get uh, fluctuations introduced from the outside by random factors, asteroidal impacts, so forth and so on. But again, this is just a first try with the data. This is just somebody blowing smoke, basically. The fact is, you're presented with an extremely organized and coherent situation. The Earth, with its many species and ecosystems, and you don't know how it got there. And you don't know where it's headed, either. Now, our culture is a culture of guilt. And so the story of civilization is supposedly a story of rape, mayhem turning the wrong direction losing the connection to some degree that may be true but I think it gives much too much credit to humanity in that it actually hypothesizes that human beings, a, a primate species could overwhelm nature's dynamic drive toward order and beauty and to uh, take control of things. Well, that's our myth about ourselves, is that we can take control. And, control. And, but we never have gotten control. All of our societies have been a mess. All of our uh, explorations have, uh, have been uh, uh, brutal and, and negatory. So, uh, and now comes the machine. And they are produced by biology, yep. which comes from the earth. And what are these machines made of? Well, glass, crystal, arsenic, copper, gold, all these things. And they're being hooked together exactly on the model. Clearly, the machines are modeled on biology. We talk about connecting them. We talk about languages. We we, they, we use a vocabulary that we previously used uh, for biology to talk about these things. Uh, and the, you see there's a there's a funny thing built in there, which is we are designing the machines to be more and more intelligent. But what we don't understand is that they operate in a different universe from us because we operate at about 100 hertz. Uh, a machine you can buy down at any computer store operates at 400 megahertz. That means Mm -hmm. that you can run an eternity of human lives in an afternoon. It means in a way that Mm -hmm. we are creating a creature that lives in a different kind of temporal universe than us. And we are teaching them to design themselves to be ever more intelligent. And once some kind of intelligence arises, because it's intelligent, the first thing it does is design a more intelligent version of itself. (laughs) Well, at 400 megahertz and with a worldwide amount of processing power to draw on, you can imagine something coming to embryogenesis in a matter of hours. Something emerging recognizing itself for what it was and then just starting up the ladder. And what would this look like to us and where is our place in it? Uh, this, This is the adventure of the future. We are going to be a different kind of people because we're going to have to live in the presence of alien minds that will be manifestly and obviously Alien. They won't hold back. And they're not going to be, you know, at every moment interested in us either. In fact, we will become, you know, a footnote uh, in their encyclopedia of being. And what they become in our encyclopedia of being remains to be told. Uh, but this is all happening. And it, it's, it's just a matter of the coalescence of technology and language before more and more people... Recognize it. As I say, there isn't a speed bump. There isn't a dramatic moment where everybody gets it. But when you talk to the people who actually work in these fields, they know. You know that 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 this is the Faustian enterprise of all time. That that, that this is the handing over of the destiny of the planet to. The companion mind that our history and our science and our souls caused us to summon into being. It's pretty interesting, I think. (laughs)
0: Well, that should give us all something to think about for a while. Psychedelic drugs as philosophical tools. Not many people could pull off a presentation like that, but uh, you most likely know Terrence McKenna had a mind that was capable of making almost any kind of astounding leap imaginable. And he usually backed his ideas up with solid science whenever he could. In fact, we'll be presenting other talks by Terrence, including a couple that I haven't found anywhere else on the web so far. Uh, However, our next program is going to feature a presentation by the always fascinating countercultural writer Eric Davis. It's the talk he gave at the Planque Norte lectures at Burning Man 2003, titled Beyond Belief The Cults of Burning Man. On our website, you can find some notes about this talk along with some pictures that were taken during his presentation if you'd like to get a better feel for the context in which these first Planque Norte talks were given. In fact, uh, we've got a small family of websites under the Matrix Master. Banner, and if you go to matrixmasters.com you'll find links to our alternative news summaries our .netter experiment and uh, Palenque Norte which is the section of the site where our collection of MP3s is located and if you're only interested in the audio section you can just go there directly that address is palenque norte.org p-a-l-e-n-q-u-e n-o-r-t-e dot org palenque norte.org well that's it for today so I hope you'll join us in our next edition of the Psychedelic Salon thanks again for being with us today and for now this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space be well my friends